It has been called a masterpiece. A nightmare. Horrifying. Electrifying. Beautiful. Terrifying. Mystical. Magical. Incredible. Insane. Francis Ford Coppola presents Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall, Martin Sheen, Apocalypse Now, rated R. Check newspapers for a theater near you. Welcome back to another episode of Reconcinimation. I'm John Diner. I'm David Munchak. And this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're checking out how they hold up in the crazy year of 2020, mm. or present day in general. Uh, and uh, today we've got, a, we've got a doozy. You ready to cover this one, David? Uh, never. I've never been ready. Never been less ready for anything. <laughs> well, we, you know, we had a good time looking back uh, last month at uh, at Bill Paxton and with Paxton Fest, mm-hmm. and you know, we ended on a, a much a very light note with Twister. So I figured let's get let's get real dark and and deep. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to 1979 mm. and look at Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now. <laughs> what the the the. The lighthearted romp. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, I am. Uh, it was a toss-up between this and uh, and Teen Wolf. You know, Teen Wolf. Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, we got. I think this would be the right one to to start with. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I am. I don't know, man. They. They. You know how I am with things. Like, don't they teach entire film courses on this movie? Like, are we? I don't know if I'm ready for this. So we'll, I'm going to do my best. And then let's just let's just just go with it. Let's have some let's have well, some fun. You know, like our our usual dynamic. You're coming from the perspective of not having seen the film until recently, and looking at the the modern day perspective with fresh eyes. How does this film work today? Whereas I'm looking at it, I've seen it a million times. I studied it in film school, uh, and and know the film very well. So you know, seeing where those two cons, where those two points of view meet up. Right, that's the idea. Some of these movies I've seen ahead of time. This one, yeah, I'm just gonna jump right in. Saw it this week for the first time, <laughs> but I've seen bits. I have seen um, part portions of this movie. I don't know when and why and how. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it was never a movie I sat down to watch. So this, uh, this, this was finally time. I mean, if we're doing a film podcast, I should probably see Apocalypse now at some point, and then that point is now. It was the. It was now. That's it. it. It's now, baby. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, what was the reputation? I mean, obviously, you heard of the film growing up as a, uh, you know, in um, yeah, as a kid. What, what did What did you hear about it? What was? Uh, what did you think of the film itself without having seen it? Um, that it's like uh, epic. Uh, it's a uh, or it's a masterpiece. It sort of had a mythic quality to it. Sort of. And there was legendary stories about how it was made, and um, and then you know, knowing that were there are very specific things that were that populated the pop culture afterward, um, and then seeing it everywhere, especially you know, especially the Napalm in the Morning line, that that's that's permeated everywhere. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, I knew that it was 
it was it seemed like it seemed like this grand thing that that was almost untouchable um or for the uninitiated so that's maybe that might have been almost a to serve as an aversion uh you know that led to my aversion to maybe even starting with it like you know like mm-hmm. this is this is too much for you to handle goofball you know <laughs> this is not for you this is for put police academy back on get rid of this <laughs> yeah if you don't put citizens on patrol back on you know you're going to have a bad time so yeah. i feel like it had such a reputation that was so so big so much larger than life um you know i don't know it, it almost seemed otherworldly to me in that sense mm-hmm. but uh, yeah i understand that yeah yeah that that's what it felt like yeah i i was a bit i think as a kid i was a bit intimidated by this movie my uh, yeah i same as you like i remember the reputation of this epic giant war film that goes beyond that and my dad used to go around quoting the napalm in the morning line and and uh it just seemed very i don't know too big for me to handle <laughs> definitely for any any kid to handle but uh, yeah i didn't see it until uh you know as we've talked about before uh me in my teenage years in the summer of 96 i was visiting my uncle out here in southern california and he had you know kind of had it with with uh my love for the blockbuster actiony movies of the 90s and he said you want to you want to go to film school you want to learn something about film i'm going to sit you down and show you these great films from uh the 70s the 60s and 70s and kind of school you myself so uh and this was one of them so you know he sat me down and I was like laser focused on on Chinatown and Deer Hunter and Godfather 2, Mean Streets, you know, a crash course in all 70s films. But it was like I was, you know, as a teenager, I had a lot less responsibilities and stuff to be worrying about. So I could it was very easy to like laser focus on what I was watching. And this was one that I probably got almost maybe the most absorbed into. It was very I had it was a really a strong emotional reaction at at the end of this movie like i was exhausted i remember just being completely wiped out and like my mind was kind of blown like when i was finished with this wow um yeah it was uh it probably you know took me out of reality you know more than any other of the 70s films that i watched in that little session that was probably like a two-week session he had me just one after another after another yeah um so it was intense well i can see that because this is not quite like those other other 70s films that gritty realism uh that you sort of had this had a a level level of surrealism uh surrealism so i'm not saying it right so i you know especially you know it just sort of like becomes a, a different movie by the end you know you kind of start it in one place and you end up in a totally different one um by the end so i can i can imagine that you go through a journey and i mean i think i sort of felt something similar to that but not being a um a child like you were a child of the the 90s um <laughs> at the time you know it's it, it certainly uh, not touching my sensibilities the same way it would someone exploring brand new territory so but i get it like it 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 is something that sort of uh challenges you and engages you um 
as you go as you move through it. Yeah, it's and I think it's part of that. You know, it really it has a dreamlike, you know, a dreamlike quality. Yeah, that is so different from. You know, it's not necessarily like a narrative story like, you know, most other movies are. And, and you know, even everything from the 70s, um, which was done in a completely different style than what had come before and what came after. Mm-hmm. But this is sort of a separate deal. Um, it, it's it's really like its own kind of movie. It, it's it, to me, this feels much more like an art film than, mm. uh, you know, than an actual studio picture. Yeah. Yeah, and it it sort of becomes that, right? I mean, I guess it opens that way, too, but it's almost like this blurred line. You know, the, mm-hmm. the opening of the movie and the end of the movie is this, like, blurred line that kind of connects it. You know, it's almost like a loop, I think. You could, like, almost watch the movie mm-hmm. in, a, in a loop in that way um, because there are some, like, pretty standard things that you get, like, once, he, once Willard is out on his mission. Um, but then, you know, the cracks start to come and... and the the shifts happen so yeah this certainly is like unlike any of those other films you were you know sort of being exposed to for the first time yeah Um, yeah and and i did you know in film school of course we did study study it for its really its technical aspects you know we studied this for the the editing style and the sound effects and the use of music and kind of combining all of those things and we, you know, one of our main textbooks was in the blink of an eye, which was written by Walter Murch, who did, you know, the the editing and the sound effects for the for the film. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, you know, I, I remember freshman year. This was one of the first things we looked at the, mm-hmm. you know, that opening sequence and the, the 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 ceiling, you know, the helicopter blades that morph into the ceiling fan, and yeah. and then the whole, you know, attack uh, on the on the school uh, with Robert Duvall's character and, mm-hmm. you know, that whole sequence and just how th- th- it's really masterfully edited this whole film. Mm-hmm. I agree with but you. But yeah. <laughs> and th- there's, there's so much to talk about, you know, so much about the, this movie is really about the making of it and uh, as much as the film itself. Yeah. So I, I wanted to look at both things and, and uh, kind of go down, go down that river, if you will. Okay, sure. Yeah. We'll kick <laughs> us off. What what are we talking about? Who's who's involved in this movie? So there's a there's a you know before we get into the who I want to oh. you know just set the stage of we talk a lot about uh, my love for new you know Hollywood new wave films and uh, that's this period from roughly 1967 through the early to mid 80s um, in in American cinema where which was a complete change from the way films the film industry had been producing films up until that point and then again after that it was uh went in an opposite direction but it was a much more artistically uh driven uh create you know this creative the directors had this creative autonomy that never existed before that and probably won't ever exist again to that extent uh, for you know maybe for good reason but um it was you know roughly starting with uh with bonnie and clyde or thereabouts uh, and ending somewhere, you know, around 1983 with The King of Comedies, kind of one of the last uh, films from that period. But um, it was a movement away from 
the spectacle films of this old studio system of the big lavish productions and the you know David O. Selznick films and the John Ford style of films mm-hmm. and it was a, a movement much more towards realism and you know we always talk about you always make fun of me for calling it the, the gritty films of the 70s but that's true no I understand no, I mean it's not <laughs> it's not really to make fun of you it's just like it's you just it, you pick on me all the time about it it's a it's a nice shorthand <laughs> to that description so gritty <laughs> i've heard other people do that to be honest about the 70s about movies from the 70s well so. yeah it's a good way to describe it you know not to say you originated it but i'm also you're not the only place i've heard it from so i think it, it just became <laughs> cartoonish for me eventually <laughs> uh, but not only are the you know the filmmakers uh changing but the audience is changing especially you know with with everything that's going on in the 60s it was the audience was changing and growing and um, it was much younger audience starting to come to the theaters and, uh, you know, who were inspired by and the filmmakers were inspired by the French New Wave, uh, which had happened in the early 60s and saw this, you know, different way of making films that you can start doing it in, in a more cerebral way and not this, you know, everything kind of being spoon fed to you and this, um, you know, operatic kind of style you can get much more down and dirty with it yeah uh you know the studio executives who were taking over hollywood were were much younger and produced you had producers like bert schneider who um you know produced easy rider eventually morphing into run columbia studios and uh so there was a big big swing away from the old studio system and uh, how that was built and, and just everything was, was changing at its core. Um, and that helped with the breakup of the production code in 1966 as well. So there was much more free reign to, uh, for the directors and the writers to have a creative voice uh, than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and the style of the films themselves were, you know, it was kind of mirroring the entry into Vietnam and, and everything going on with Nixon. And, and there's this distrust, and you know, and Lyndon Johnson, this, this distrust of the government. Um, you know, the, the, the films were made to, to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, the characters weren't really making the best choices. There, there were a lot of the characters are very self-destructive. Mm-hmm. So it's you know a, a lot of the endings were real downer endings which weren't really seen that often before that i think you got them in the film noir era but besides that it was like it was you know the happy endings most of the time um the good guys win and and or the guy gets the girl and and here in the in the new hollywood new wave you're seeing a whole other direction that these characters are self-destructing and and ruining their chances but it's so it feels real because they're making choices that people actually make and and making the same mistakes that actual humans make and not this fairy tale kind of storytelling yeah Hmm. um and one of those you know there's a lot of major major names that came out of that movement and some didn't really survive out of the 70s and and you know the directors themselves were self-destructive um, and some of them did, and some of them, you know, went on to become, you know, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese, and Francis Ford Coppola are probably the biggest, um, you know, survivors of that era. And a lot of filmmakers, you know, really their best work was there and never really did much beyond that. But um, 
Coppola is an interesting one because he's still he's still considered like a god of cinema. But well, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember the last Coppola movie that I really loved, and I think it is this Apocalypse Now. In terms of uh, uh, in order, you know, his the yeah, latest yeah. film of his. Uh, yeah, hmm. there's other ones that are good. Um, you know, there's Peggy Sue got married and the outsiders and mm-hmm. some people like Dracula. Uh, there's Jack in 96. Jack. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this movie is really kind of the pinnacle, I think for him where, where he left everything out on the table. Hmm. He went, he went for it. He went, I uh, sure did. He spent, I, <laughs> I think he really spent uh, all of his creative juices on this movie. And, you know, it took, it took, that's part of what we're going to get into is the, how the movie was made and, and what caused him to, you know, what, what things happened that, that took so long to make this movie and tell this story and why it took so much out of him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Let's get into it. Yeah. I love it. All right. Yeah. Coppola. Coppola, so Coppola had, uh, as a child, was stricken with polio, uh, so he was kind of bedridden for a while, and while he was, uh, you know, stuck in bed, he would get, use his, you know, he didn't have anything to do but use his imagination, so he started, that's where he really started to learn the art of storytelling, and, you know, knew that was his draw. I think he was also very into music, his father was a composer, um, but he was, uh, at the same time, he was really studying the films of Elliot Kazan and and really getting uh, seeing the direction he wanted to take himself creatively. So he ends up going to UCLA in 1960, or uh, sorry, graduating in 1960, and ends up getting together with Roger Corman, who is hmm. one of the biggest independent filmmakers in history. He's so many people got their start with him. He's you know famous for making these mega low budget films very down and dirty, very quick. Mm-hmm. You know, he could make a, a feature film in a few days. <laughs> yeah. And he would do it very efficiently and cost-effective and, you know, churn one out after another. But this was like active film school for a lot of people. And uh, and so many, you know, actors and directors came through there. And it was really just, you know, getting in there and learning it the, the hard way, <laughs> like really fast. Um uh, so Co- he, Coppola ends up becoming his assistant for for a little while, and, and Corman gives him the chance to direct uh, his first film called Dementia 13, which he, he made in nine days. Whoa. So think about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that was... I, I don't know what the access to that film is. I know it was out for a while. I don't I don't think it's streaming anywhere, but you can probably find it on DVD somewhere. Um, even if it's in some kind of Coppola box set or something, but I remember seeing it out there, um, and it's it's an interesting. It's it's very much a first film, but it's uh, I think that you can see the talent there as uh, as Corman did. So, you know, Corman advised him like start writing scripts, and we, we've talked about that in other episodes. That a good entry into for directors is to start writing and start selling screenplays, mm-hmm. um, which is what Coppola did next. He uh, so he ends up uh, direct. He sorry ends up writing Finian's Rainbow and the Rain People, uh, which are very you know different films from what he would be making in the seventies. Um, Finian's Rainbow is a musical with Fred Astaire, so oh. 
you know, uh, just and I think that was part of his other upbringing with his father and the, that musical nature that he was he was very accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Rain People is where he first meets James Caan, who will be another actor who he works uh, semi regularly with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the biggest script that he sold was uh, was Patton. He wrote the script for that, which won him the uh, the Academy Award in 1970. And have you seen Patton? I haven't seen Patton. I think I've seen bits of it. But yeah, no, I know I haven't seen it. It's a great. I mean, just for all the the you know the monologues that that mm-hmm. uh, George C. Scott delivers as Patton, it's uh, the writing is fantastic and well deserved award for him. But that was, you know, he's coming in. He's this young, you know, very creative guy who's got a big personality coming in at the right time uh, as this you know, new wave movement is coming in and these younger producers are wanting new voices and new new filmmakers. And it was almost like, you know, the filmmakers prior to that just kind of stopped. Like at this point, you know, your Alfred Hitchcocks and your John Fords are sort of aging out of, you know, being able to direct regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're, you know, they were some of the biggest you know, putting out the the most films uh, more than I think you know many many other directors. So they're really looking for new voices, and and it's an opportunity for Coppola to kind of jump in and try to take the reins. There was being there was room being made as as these guys were kind of phasing out in, in their career. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, that studio system had really been around for you know over over 20 years so some of these guys were really getting up in age and not not either not interested or getting pushed out of the business um so it was just a lot of room was being made for for new voices and and visions um and coppola it feels like coppola was kind of like leading the pack he was very outspoken and kind of these guys were all or most of them were friends it was like you know, Coppola, Scorsese, George Lucas, Brian De Palma, John Milius were all in this, and Spielberg were like in this click together. And if you, uh, a really great book, if you haven't read it, is uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls by Peter Biskind, <laughs> which gives a really great look back at what was in real detail, like what was going on with these guys. And, and you had new stars coming in, like Jack Nicholson and Al Pacino and De Niro and Redford and. Uh, some some people were able to make that transition, like Paul Newman, who we've talked about here before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Paul Newman was able to kind of play that game very sly, you know, very sly to uh, keep his star status. Whereas, and McQueen, Steve McQueen as well. But um, a lot of folks were just it was time for new blood. Uh, so Coppola, you know, ends up making godfather one godfather two and the conversation all pretty much back to back within a three-year period uh which is maybe the (laughs) the best you know the the strongest amount of work in the shortest time period that anyone's ever done in this business (laughs) i mean yeah those are three like legendary iconic films yeah that's just three home runs in a row in the same game man that's just like (laughs) you don't you can't really get better than that if you spread those out i'm sure you could you you know you point to that but to yeah to have them done all together that's got to be he had to be mr hollywood for that for those couple of couple of years right i mean definitely i think you know he was like i said he was sort of because of those successes and, and the godfather was you know, people talk about The Godfather 2 maybe being the more creative work 
between one and two, but mm-hmm. one was the bigger financial hit. I mean, one was, uh, you know, I think it not adjusting for inflation, but was was the new box office champion um, at the time. So, you know, that gave him a lot of clout and a lot of power in Hollywood. And then he followed that up with Godfather 2, which was even more of a creative success and more respected. And then the conversation, which is a little bit more of an art film, Mm -hmm. I would say, than the other two, uh, not as operatic, but uh, an amazing film there. So it was like, my God, what, what else can this guy do? Yeah, yeah. I really liked the conversation. Well, I enjoyed that. I'd seen that years ago. Yeah, I can't wait to look at, you know, and maybe we'll look at each of those at some point yeah. uh, in detail because there's, again, so much to talk about for each of those. Oh, I know. <clears throat> so that leads to, you know, let's let's move ahead to 1975 where now he can sort of have free reign of what does he want to do? You know, he's made these big, these three films that are all hits you know, now he's got a little more license to, uh, you know, dictate what what his next film is going to be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for the, for there was a lot of ideas always with these guys. There was ideas going around for years and years, and and they all kind of helped each other out and worked on each other's scripts and would kind of give pointers uh, to each other. And uh, you know, I know, like George Lucas and Brian De Palma ran casting sessions for star wars and carrie simultaneously (laughs) so like carrie fisher came in to read for princess leia but then she also read for roles in carrie on that same day same day same room same room okay yeah got it sharing this and then they would like lucas would give comments about carrie and de palma would give comments about the star wars (laughs) performances and it was like this real mishmash but that was going on all over like they were Mm -hmm you know, working together on, on a lot of things. And um, so in the late 1960s, John Milius and George Lucas are, are looking at adapting uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, mm. uh, which had never been, you know, there, Orson Welles made an attempt to adapt it and it just got way too, you know, over budget before they even started anything. So he abandoned that so he could make Citizen Kane. Uh, but no one else had really tried to develop it. It's a challenging story about you know this uh, this journey down down river towards this um i think it's an ivory trader where where mr kurtz is an ivory trader who's gone mad in the jungle and um you know the main character is trying to find out what happened and it's just this kind of look at the insanity of the situation mm-hmm. uh so you know it's a challenging movie to make um they milius wanted to actually shoot it during the Vietnam War in Vietnam. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, you know, these guys were these guys were wild. I mean, if you look at, if you know anything about Dennis Hopper and the making of Easy Rider and the last movie, these guys were, you know, a lot of them were willing to, you know, they had a lot of guts. <laughs> they were willing to really get into it for the art of it, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. Um. But even they knew that that was, I think Vietnam was a little too hairy to actually, you know, do something like this there. And George Lucas certainly wasn't wanting to do it. And Coppola was kind of producing and, you know, was was advising them as they wrote this script and always kind of had an eye on what they were doing as it kind of got into, you know, the early 1970s. Um, One thing led to another. Lucas ends up 
kind of abandoning the project so he could make um, so he could make American Graffiti and then later Star Wars. But uh, and Milius uh, had moved on to other projects as well. Coppola took the opportunity to take that script and really start playing with it, start you know putting his stamp on it. Originally, the ending of the film was where Willard gets to Kurtz and they end up like teaming up to shoot down, you know, the American planes that are overhead. And then they, they, you know, the helicopters and they end up, you know, dying together in this blaze of glory, uh, which, yeah, which is a very different ending and Coppola hated it. So, (laughs) um, you know, he begins rewriting it and, this whole transition from, you know, what Milius' script was and what the concept was really changes by the time Coppola's into shooting. And it's like the ideas in, in Coppola's own mind were continuing to change and he would, you know, lose sight of, like, what film he was really trying to make, um, which, you know, caused a lot of problems. But... He ended up coming back around to it, but uh, his goal was to just make the first film, first real film about Vietnam. He was very inspired to be the first one to tell that, you know, to tell a story set in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, the process of making the movie took so long that you know several other films came out before before his, mm-hmm. but uh, his is definitely the most epic. You know, the the thing, the interesting part that we're, we're going to now kind of get into is like the parallel stories of like the, the story of Captain Willard going down the river to find Colonel Kurtz. And uh, he's given the task of assassinating him, essentially. Um, and then the the journey of making this actual film and why it took three years and how many problems uh, came along the way. It's really it's a it's a look at the insanity of it all from both sides as making a film and the Vietnam War itself yeah it's it's uh having seen the the hearts of darkness documentary making of after the uh after the film really opens up like it's it's pretty surprising how much uh the, the parallels uh, are there and how crazy yeah, what the actual did, production is what did you think like seeing cuz you watched you watched Apocalypse Now for the first time and then Hearts of Darkness, which is, yeah, the documentary by Eleanor Coppola or a lot of footage shot by Eleanor Coppola that, you know, tells the story of, of what the making of the movie was like. What did you think, you know, what did you think about that, having just seen them? It's, uh, it's, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, the, the, like, my immediate reaction to it was, is sort of like, it's kind of unbelievable that this, took the scope and scale that it did over the time that it did like i don't i didn't i don't know if i saw so much the him going so crazy i mean it's there for sure he is losing his mind over doing this but it's it seems so self-inflicted um on 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 so many levels that i mean i just i'm not yeah it is in a lot of ways yeah i mean i don't know i mean i know things happen that are out of his control um that would uh drive anyone mad but i mean it's it's kind of astounding that it that it took as long as it did and i'm kind of and he doesn't seem like he's such a he seems like a pretty well put together normal guy who understands like his process and things so it, it's kind of a 
it's a little bit of a mystery to me, like how it ended up this way in a sense, mm-hmm. like not a mystery because it is, it's all right there, but it's sort of, no, I, I think would any, did he have some sort of reputation about him that this, this makes sense? I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't know that, you know, um, if like, this is kind of, were there difficulties with the Godfather films and, and the conversation? Oh yeah. There was, there was definitely problems with, with the Godfather for sure. Uh, I mean, more of like, you know, he's, he's a real, he's, he's an artist. Coppola was an artist and he really immersed himself in the world of the, the project he was working on. Um, you know, and he really would stick to his guns and really put, everything was on the line with the Godfather. I mean, they had, uh, you know, Paramount was all over him and, and was against almost all of his creative decisions. And they, they even had another guy on set, like ready to, when they fired Coppola, that he would just step in the director's chair and finish the movie. Um, you know, they were still, there were still enough studio executives who were, not who were working in the studio, but not really ready for the kinds of films that these directors really wanted to make and that the, you know, active producers wanted to make. Um, so when they would start, but they wouldn't realize this till they would start seeing footage. You know, it's one thing that a script is a script, but once you see the, you know, the dailies coming back and, oh my God, what, what is this? Like, well, this isn't the sequence that, this isn't how the sequence reads. It's because now you've got real, you know, creative visionaries telling these stories and making it more visually dynamic and not so straightforward like a lot of the the studio films previously were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's no fault of the the filmmakers from prior generations. It was just that's the way it was. Sure. But um, you know, this one especially, like Coppola, really put his heart and his mind. <laughs> into this mm-hmm. into the making of this and uh and and his own finances i mean you know paramount greenlights the movie in 1975 with a 13 million dollar budget uh <laughs> that budget is going to be gone very very quickly because he's so ambitious in what he's trying to do uh they decide to shoot the movie in the philippines um, because it looks, you know, almost identical to Vietnam. Yeah. And they made a deal. He made a deal with uh, Ferdinand Marcos that he could use the uh, the military equipment, yeah. the helicopters, and uh, you know all of that gear yeah. was at his disposal. But the only catch is that, you know, if something comes up, you know, they they were basically had their own military situation going on in the Philip with the South Philippines. So if he needed the, that equipment back, Marcos could call it back. Even if they were in the middle of a shot, they would just go. Yeah. Um, which is a problem that would come up several times for him. Yeah. I guess that, you know, that, that puts you behind uh, a lot. And if you're struggling to really get that perfect shot and, 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 and changing things every day and, <laughs> rewriting and all that i mean yeah to add add like so many outside influences to how you can even accomplish it i can see it's uh, gets kind of maddening uh on that yeah one. and and coppola's own journey through this i mean he he doesn't really have a strong ending you know he knew he didn't want the ending that milius had but he doesn't have a great ending to replace it so mm. as he's making this movie you know, it's kind of parallels like Willard's journey down the river and the deeper they get into the making of the movie, the deeper the problems are and the more problems that are coming up. And then, 
you know, like any film production, once you get into it, you're into it. And there's a lot of money on the line and there's a lot of responsibility. And especially when, you know, your heart's in the project, you're not going to give that up. Right. Yeah. You and that's what, kind of what we see here. Yeah. There's, there's no really any room to compromise at that point, right? <laughs> From the artistic yeah. side. I mean, and they're halfway around the world. So it's got to be, you know, easier to sort of just kind of make your case from that far away and yeah. uh, keep it going. Yeah, I mean, pretty quickly, right? You know, right after they get there, they've cast the movie. He's made a deal with Marlon Brando, who's one of the biggest at the time, one of the biggest legends in the in the in the business. You know, he'd been around since the fifties and really sort of was one of the pioneers of the method acting uh, technique. Uh, where where he would just like live in as the character even off camera while during the whole production of a film and mm-hmm. and it was really uh, you know brought a certain level of intensity it was him and James Dean and Paul Newman did that for a, a while and um, and then once The Godfather came out he kind of Brando kind of went to like this epic godlike level as far as performers go. Um, and his his appearances would get fewer and farther between, um, but he was a major name, and I think I think he's top billed in this movie. Oh, is he really? I didn't even remember. Yeah, I think it's I think the order is Brando, Robert Duvall, Martin Sheen. <laughs> <laughs> wow! So <laughs> really trying to capitalize on it, but they make a deal for uh, I think it was a million dollars per week for three weeks of filming. Oh wow! Good so and this is made. You know, this is based on their relationship from Godfather One, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. they, uh, you know, Brando wasn't necessarily easy on Godfather One, but he had enough, um, you know, enough of a uh, clout in the business that he was still a big. That was a big get to have uh, to have him in this movie. Mm-hmm. But um, we'll see what happens later on when, when Brando actually shows up on set. But. <laughs> uh, Harvey Keitel is originally cast as as Captain Willard. Mm-hmm. Uh, after about a week's worth of filming, they realized that that was that was not the right choice, and he made the very difficult decision to replace his lead actor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, during filming, which yeah. is tough on everybody. Um, you yeah. know, they probably made the right call. I can't really. Can you see Harvey Keitel like in that role? I. I'd want to see him. I don't know, but yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, probably not. I think. I think. I think Marty is a Marty Sheen's your your better choice there. Yeah. Yeah, I think. I, I just. I don't know. Maybe an older. I could see Harvey Keitel playing the 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 um, Kilgore role, the oh, Robert yeah. Duvall role. Yeah. You know, a little bit older, but yeah. I don't. Yeah, I th- I think it was probably the best call. For, uh, to replace him, but yeah. but it held up filming, you know. So they he Coppola had to come back to the states. He met Martin Sheen at an airport, um, at, you know, at LAX, and had a quick meeting and agreed to bring him in. He already knew. Uh, did I say Martin Short? No, no. I, don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I thought I said I Martin Short. That'd be hilarious. So yeah, he makes the decision to replace Harvey Keitel. He meets Martin Sheen at uh, at LAX, and they have a quick meeting, and he agrees to do the movie and. And Martin Sheen had been one of the actors who read for um, for Michael Corleone for The Godfather, so they already knew each other, and mm-hmm. um, you know he knew Sheen's reputation and had seen him in Badlands and in other films. And um, so you know they they get back to the Philippines, and then the 
monsoon season and typhoons come in and wipe out all the sets that had been built at the time. <laughs> so That's no good. <laughs> yeah, so there's you know yet another another hurdle, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and you're going to see like this just keeps kind of happening. So uh, you know they, the the big set is the Kurtz compound set deep in the heart of the jungle which were this, you know, this giant statues and everything and very expensive. And uh, this typhoon comes in and and destroys the whole thing and destroys several of the other sets and everything. You know, I think they're they're weeks down where they can't film and they have to just wait and wait and wait. Um, You know, in the meantime, he's still trying to figure out the end of this journey and and what the uh, how this is all going to work out because it's he's really you know the story is inspired by heart of darkness but it's not a it's not a really telling that same story no and it can't be especially on this this backdrop of the vietnam war i mean you've got to you sh- you got to alter it like like especially if it's like what are you trying to say here you know what <laughs> what is this war doing to our our people um, or to any human human person, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to sort of like try to crystallize it down um, is is a monumental task. I can see. So yeah, I mean, if you're if you're shooting this like just a giant thing with all these delays that nothing's going right, um, things are being very experimental, uh, getting hours and hours of footage, and you still don't know what the ending is. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now that now seeing like now that we're talking about these things, like it looks makes a little more sense. Or he's he's slowly losing his goddamn mind. <laughs> yeah. It's you know it's it, just on regular film shoots. You know when there's a delay, it's frustrating. And then yeah. you know when you have major delays like this, you know where there's you know weeks have now gone by where you're not able to film. And then you know with the with uh, Ferdinand Marcos calling away the helicopters that were so essential in the first, you know, half of the movie, uh, they would be mid shot and they would just go off and be gone. And they, you know, they were, he his hands were tied. Like he couldn't, there were, there were days where he just couldn't film at all, that there was nothing that he could do. Right. Um, in the meantime, you know, Paramount approved the $13 million budget, but the, the catch was anything beyond that, Coppola had to pay for himself. Oh my God. So by the end of the movie, you know, it had ballooned to a $31 million budget. Oh my gosh. So he put so, up 18 of his own, 18 million of his own. Yeah. Uh, he mortgaged his, his house, his vineyard, his property, everything, everything he had. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if this movie wasn't a hit, he was, you know, he was going to sink himself and probably United Artists as well. Yeah, I mean, an, in today's dollars, that total budget of thirty is probably around a hundred and some. I think I, I was looking at knowing inflation calendar calculators and stuff like that. I think it's around a hundred and some. So, right, he's if you're talking about him him putting up um, more than way more than half, he's putting up you know more than fifty million of his own dollars in that of in the seventies. <laughs> like, yeah, um, yeah. So, which so is it's like everything, bananas. everything he made from The Godfather one and two was, you know, going right into this. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, they started filming in nineteen in February nineteen seventy six, and they finished, I believe, in March seventy seven. So, the whole process. I mean, normally it was supposed to be a sixteen week shoot, which is four months, mm-hmm. and it takes thirteen months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I saw that 
it's at the end of at the end of everything it was 240 some hours of of footage was shot i think yeah for the editors yeah. so i mean what's the typical you're you went to film school what's the typical amount of film you would shoot for for per minute of like actual on-screen film isn't there some sort of metric some sort of like average of you know for every minute of screen time it's probably 10 minutes or something or i don't know maybe less than that i don't know yeah i'm not sure i can't remember what the what the ratio is it's been so long since i worked with actual film yeah Um, yeah but uh yeah there is uh, he's just shooting a tremendous amount a tremendous amount of footage and and uh, you know, it's re- it, the whole process is just getting rapidly out of control. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's one thing after another, and yeah. you know, constant delays on set as well. You know, uh, you know, the next big hurdle is Martin Sheen had a had a major heart attack. Yeah, and he had to disappear for <laughs> a couple months, right? Yeah, he was well. He was gone for like I think six weeks. Six weeks. Um, but uh, you know, he was so nervous what would happen if paramount found out that sheen had a heart attack i mean martin sheen was going through his own issues at the time you know with alcoholism and depression and Mm. and this role you know this role of captain willard was losing martin sheen was like losing his mind getting into this character as well Mm -hmm. um so (laughs) you know he has this heart attack and Coppola does not want word getting back to Paramount that it's a heart attack. Otherwise they would come in and just shut the whole movie down and that's it. Oh yeah. So he has his assistant, you know, you get word back to them that it's heat exhaustion that he, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, he basically passed out from heat exhaustion. He's in the hospital. He's fine. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, you know, you hear him talk about it on heart of hearts of darkness that, uh, you know, if Martin Sheen dies, we'll deal with it then. I'll get another actor in and we'll reshoot everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'm already in over my head anyway, so what does it matter? Yeah. Yeah, just go for broke here, like whatever it takes. How did So how did you feel about the opening sequence with uh, where Martin Sheen is, is both in, in reality and Captain Willard are, you know, that, that drunk, you know, moments of insanity of him in his hotel room um i think it's good i think it's a it it makes a lot of sense to sort of establish this post-traumatic stress over what he's already done and that narration sort of helps frame it that you know he's he's become part of this like the the war is part of him now and that's where he kind of belongs but he he's but I think he's struggling with like the man he is before the war and what the war has created for him. And then, mm-hmm. which sort of like just sets it up perfectly of like, and now this is the guy they're going to go send to, to take care of Kurtz. Who's gone completely insane over the war. <laughs> like So like, right. It's, it's just setting up like there, there's a real chance that things are going to go real bad for Willard. Um, so it's a little, and I think it sets the tone for like, there's going to be like sort of this surrealism, uh, surrealism uh, to come, you know, where because once he gets his mission and the assignment, it's sort of like it's sort of like this kind of I don't know, like a straightforward kind of 
like western kind of movie or something you know it's like kind well, of well it's it's a, it, you know a lot the central part of the movie is his just journey it's he's going from you know it, it's really kind of like the odyssey he's going from one point to another yeah. and encountering all these different people and yeah. and certain sequences feel more yeah I, I think that's a good word is surreal than than others and that opening is definitely you know, in it's like you're in his mind almost as he's as you see right when you meet the character, he's he's already lost his mind to a certain extent. Yeah, like you're you're already pri- the the pump has been primed for anything that like goes wrong with him. He's not just some guy. He's not just some soldier taking a mission. Like he has already lived through these traumas, and instead of depicting them, you know, we sort of just see him from from an outside view. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's effective uh, for for it, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I love. I'm a big. I'm a big Doors fan. So I think the the end. Oh, you, you are. Know, that that is a, just a brilliant choice to have that uh, be sort of the theme of this movie. Sure, you're a Doors fan. Oh yeah, big oh, time. Oh god. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, on. it's not Oingo Boingo. Uh, you should be. I would, <laughs> I would have loved if Oingo Boingo was in the beginning sequence. <laughs> Next time we're allowed to be in each other's presence, I'm going to make you listen to Doors songs. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, my wife won't let you come by anytime. <laughs> so she just she just doesn't want visitors right now. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, and how about Harrison Ford, huh? Young Harrison Ford. He's in the movie. Were you, like, so happy to see Harrison? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's, you know, sure. It's he's. <laughs> I like Harrison Ford for the most part. Do you, uh, so. do you, but the, I always thought it was so amazing. Like, he looks, so this movie, he shot his, you know, his scenes probably right before he filmed um, his scenes for Star Wars, but he looks like a baby in this movie. Yeah, he's very clean cut. He's got that, that he's got the, you know, he doesn't look like a brigand or a rogue. He's he's a colonel or whatever he is, and he's... You catch his name, too? Uh, Lucas. Yeah, it says Lucas. George Lucas. Do they say George in it? But, yeah. It's G. Lucas. Oh, yeah. G. Lucas, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right, that's right. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. That's funny. <laughs> like, that he actually. But that's where we. And this is the scene where they give him the assignment, and and the, you hear the famous line "Terminate with extreme prejudice," mm-hmm. which was uh, actually delivered by Jerry Zeismer, who was the first, who's Coppola's first AD. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 But uh, but yeah, Harrison Ford had been in. You know, had been obviously has a relationship with George Lucas, but he was in American graffiti and he was in the conversation as well. So he was mm-hmm. sort of another player for, for Coppola here. Um, as was GD Spradlin, who's amazing in the Godfather too. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the one who actually gives Captain Willard his, his orders. Ah, right. Yep. 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 Um, yeah. And then they start their journey down the river. We meet the rest of the cast along on the, uh, on the boat and we get to the the Colonel Kilgore. Is it Colonel Lieutenant Kilgore? I can't remember. But the Kilgore sequence with uh, with Robert Duvall, yeah, who is incredible. I, I'm a big Robert Duvall fan, but this role is this is like iconic for sure. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Kilgore. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Yeah, the, this was 
<laughs> his whole deal by the end of it i was like this is so fucked up <laughs> like yeah this is fucked up <laughs> that's all i could think um but and it's really like okay. it's a picture of the insanity of the vietnam war of the whole situation that yeah. you know these were uh, you know there were real people that this was patterned after who were just it was like they were they their minds were gone that they were just you know this they would do this brutality and just destroy these villages and these these people whether they were innocent or not and then like just want to party on the beach and you know so much as of his motivation is just clearing an area so they could have their beach party at night and go surfing yeah he he loves surfing it's so funny it's like these his, his big attachment to uh Sam Bottoms character was that he's like an he's an LA surfer dude and he's well known so then like Kilgore just uh, uh, gloms onto him like yeah and he's talking about the waves and all the and just the, the like super into surfing like these LA guys these west coast dudes they they're going to find they're going to find a uh, the the massive waves wherever they are and and how it is and it's just and it's so funny. They land in a spot, and then there's people getting shot and killed, explosions, all that. And yeah. Kilgore doesn't – he's not even paying attention about his own life. Like, it's just this – all this destruction has to happen so they can catch some gnarly waves. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a very – and you, you sort of just – you're in the same boat, I think, with Willard. Like, as, as much yeah. as Willard has, has done some horrendous things in his own career um, – He's he's still like watching this with like he's just uh, taken aback by the whole thing. Like I, I don't know. Yeah, well, you're definitely Willard is definitely representing you, the viewer. I mean, he barely says anything in this sequence, and he's just watching, and he's yeah. just kind of in awe of the level of insanity and chaos that's around him, and mm-hmm. and that's coming in Kilgore's wake. And he's this he's this giant personality. I mean, this Robert Duvall is not the biggest physical person um but he this character he seems huge to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know like he's like seven feet tall and this giant man and that's just the way he's able to create that personality and that persona um you know he, he sort of represents like the cyclops in the uh you know the mm. the odyssey yeah. um that sequence but yeah, yeah it's uh it's an amazing performance by Duval and and the scale of this sequence. I mean, you get the ride of the Valkyries playing and and you know his joy. It seems like at destroying this this village and and you know that moment where he you know the guy's got his guts hanging out and he gives this lecture about how he this man can drink from his canteen any day and then before he even hands him the canteen he gets distracted by Lance and the surfing so. Yeah. He just walks away. Yeah, yeah. He respects uh, just, these guys as fighters, you know, uh, even though he's he's coming in to clear them out, you know. And then, yeah, there's like there's those weird moments that are it'd be so funny if it isn't so horrific. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just like that. Ugh. And as a production, I mean, you you can see the scale of how they shot this. These are extremely wide shots of this whole entire beach. These massive gunfights going off. Yeah. Um, explosions all over the place. So you can see how that budget is just like boom, 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 yeah. you know? Um, and then that, you know, when they lay the napalm down in the jungle, is a massive explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
uh, you know, he Duval delivers the uh, I love the smell of napalm in the morning line, which is you know, there's several like iconic lines in this movie. And, and that's a, another one. Yeah. So, you know, as you can really see by this sequence, I, I don't think in the script, in the planning stage, they were really intending this to be as big as it was. But like everything with the film, once they're there and, you know, looking at these locations and actually planning out the shots, you know, everything is growing. Everything's getting bigger and bigger and more and more and more. Um, you know, Coppola is just constantly calling for more supplies, uh, you know, special effects stuff and, uh, you know, that he's going to need uh, that are all like unplanned and over budget. Um, it's just getting much bigger than he anticipated. And this is a really good example of that. Um, you know, quickly they're $3 million over, over budget, then four, then five. And then it's just... You know, as that pressure is compounding with it, that's, you know, just making it even harder for Coppola to, to tell this narrative story. And it's just veering further and further away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk for a second about the, the various versions of this movie. Now, I know you have not seen the uh, the Redux or the Final Cut. Nope. Um, and I've seen them. I think my preference is the theatrical cut, which is what you saw, mm-hmm. and which is the shortest version of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the other versions, especially the Redux, you know, add these very long sequences, you know, that are m- massively extended. Um, there's a, a really long sequence where they come upon this French plantation. Um, these people that have been there, you know, prior, long before the Vietnam War, and when it was occupied by France, and just won't leave. They have their own compound and their own sort of mini army there. Mm. And, uh, you know, the their, their boat pulls over and, and, you know, spends quite a bit of time with this family. And there's this, but the whole sequence is like, it's literally covered in mist. And um, it's probably, I want to say it's like a 20 or 25 minute sequence where he's with this family. And Willard kind of has this, kind of romance type thing with the with the the woman living on the plantation and it's a very bizarre and and probably the best example of like why this movie feels like a dream so you know the the redux version which is almost an hour longer total um really makes like this really feels like that that dreamlike quality Mm. and there's another sequence where they another major sequence where they meet up with the playboy bunnies whose helicopter has crashed <laughs> and their manager is basically like whoring them out <laughs> to like try to buy their survival. And uh, uh, it's just another really not so great sequence. Um, I, I think it just distracts and takes away from the, from the film. Right. So the, the final cut, which came out last year is, about 30 minutes longer than this one. So it takes, you know, it basically reels Redux back a little bit mm-hmm. and w- with yet, you know, still adding some of those sequences. I see. Okay. So I think the final cut is worth checking out. If you're a big fan of the film, Redux is definitely worth checking out too. It's just, it's a bigger commitment. And um, I don't know. It was very, uh, it's just, it's it's a lot. It's you got to be you got to be ready for it. Mm-hmm. Okay, you got to you get strap in. Here you go. It's a lot. <laughs> um, how do you feel about the other uh, the characters on the boat? 
Um, so yeah, the people, the the did, folks escorting him. You got chef. And yeah. Did you did you kind of buy them as you know realistic characters in this world, or were they kind of like um, caricatures? No, I could see it. I mean, I think you, it, they're they're all very they're all very distinct. So I think you you want to see that, and they're sort of they're a little they're all a little jaded or enthusiastic depending on which character you're talking about um Mm -hmm. and uh you know so it's a it's a motley crew a little bit and um no i think it was actually kind of i think it was a a nice compelling like grouping of characters um yeah to be the ones yeah i agree to escort him down up the river down the river or whatever um Mm -hmm. yeah for sure yeah, and and it's just it's giving you like kind of a wide variety of characters from from clean who's you know basically I think he was really supposed to be like a 14-year-old kid who lied about his age to uh get in the in the war. Yeah. Um which was funny same as Lawrence Fishburne who was uh was I think he was 16 when had said he was 18. So uh very parallel there. Uh, yeah. Um yeah, Sam Bottoms as the the you know progressively more and more drugged out surfer dude. Uh, chef as the uh, or um, yeah, Chef as the uh, I think more more are the closest to the audience really. Yeah, pro- well, well, I mean, I get. Well, you you mean Chef is the closest to the audience? Yeah, yeah, I think so. He's kind of a, yeah. Yeah, he, he's kind of just the guy waiting to get out of here. Like he's re- he's ready to finish up his tour. He, he doesn't. He's not in it for the the glory, or he's not a. He doesn't want to be a soldier. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's uh, he's drafted in. So yeah, Frederick Forrest uh, does a great job with, uh, as chef in this uh, in this film. Um, yeah, he's another actor. He's another Coppola guy too. He's in the conversation as well, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, fantastic actor that I wish we actually saw more of. Not necessarily in this movie, but in you know more from uh, you know more films from him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I, I, that's the thing. Everyone in it's really good. Like I have no complaints about any of the casting. I think it's yeah. A, this is all you got a lot of great talent here. Um, and Albert Hall is the, the Chief Phillips was uh, you know yep. commanding that boat, keep, keeping trying to like keep it all together. I don't know. It's a, it's a great it's a great bunch in this one. Yeah, really great performances, and you can see the camaraderie between uh, you know the shipmates when it starts, and then as you know they keep encountering these situations, and soon they're kind of one by one yeah. um, getting getting killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that as that dynamic changes, and you know they're they're like partying and listening to music and surfing in, in the beginning, and by the end it's like the intensity is ratcheted up so high. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Coppola, as the movie's going on, is asking for more and more time off. He wanted to take four weeks off to write the ending, to really, like, stop filming, let him go away, finish this script, really get a solid ending together, and then come back. Um, he would argue that there's nothing wrong with doing that. Like, you know, send the crew home, take everybody off payroll, or most everybody, um, you know, and then the, he could do it the way he really wanted to. With all the other problems he's encountering, he's just really struggling to get that that ending together. Um, and he was he was just m- losing his mind more and more. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of drugs going on on set. Um, you know, Sam Bottoms had talked about 
you know, he was openly using drugs there. Uh, Martin Sheen was, you know, like we said, was drinking a lot. That whole sequence, that whole opening sequence, that was um, that was shot on his 36th birthday. Yeah, he says he doesn't he really just, remember it, right? Like he was so. No, drunk. he remembers everything. Oh wait, that's like, right. He, he remembers yeah. everything, but he was so he, drunk. <laughs> he's so. I mean, he's. You know, very emotional. He'd been drinking all day. Yeah. I don't know if it was the most responsible thing for Coppola to go ahead with filming him, you know, just as a, on a safety level. <laughs> safety <laughs> I mean, level. clearly, like, when he punches the mirror, that's real blood. Like, he really cut himself. Yeah. And the crew was worried that he was going to, he's, like, incoherent. He's that level of drunk. And, you know, they were worried that he's going to attack Coppola. You know, when he's putting his fist up at the camera, that's really at Coppola and, you can hear in Hearts of Darkness, like Coppola kind of coaching him off camera and just manipulating him and directing him. And um, uh, Squir- or, uh, sorry, Martin Sheen, you know, later said that he remembered everything that happened. Yeah. You know, it may have seemed like he didn't or wasn't going to, but he remembers all of it. I, it strikes me that like maybe Coppola would be if he could, uh, you know, give drugs to people on the side just to get a different performance out of him. He would he would have done it if it was like legal you know if it was like yeah not if you could non-consensually drug them all and film whatever the hell they do i'm sure he'd be into it i think martin sheen gave him a gift uh for this i think yeah i, I don't think oh, Coppola yeah. would have wanted it any other way yeah i, I think i agree with you <laughs> you know um but like was he even i i can't quite recall was he even intended to punch the mirror at all or he, no. Yeah, I think no. He he, he because of how inebriated he was. He he thought he was further away than he was. Uh, so when he when he punches it, you know, he didn't expect to hit it. Yeah, but then there's so much. Yeah, there's so much blood and yeah, it was, it's a hell of a sequence. And then seeing the extra footage of it in the Hearts of Darkness, just like you know, just going through that with with uh, you know getting those directions and all that. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, it's a really powerful scene, like so many of the scenes in this film. Um, and and Martin Sheen was had this internal battle of like, who is Martin Sheen versus who is Captain Willard, and are they is is there, uh, you know, is there a part of Martin Sheen that can do these dark things that Willard's capable of doing, and and he's trying to find that part of himself. That's what you know, really great actors can do. But it was causing such literal heartache for for Martin Sheen mm-hmm. and, and it really all comes out in that sequence. Hmm. So it's really like the watching that sequence. It's really Martin Sheen. You're seeing not captain Willard. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. And w- it's funny when, when Sheen has this not, it's not funny that Martin Sheen had a heart attack, but um, not really. They, they end up bringing his brother, Joe Estevez, who was, I remember Joe Estevez from like, you know, D grade, you know, action and sci-fi movies from the nineties, but mm-hmm. Joe Estevez was, became Martin Sheen's double. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of sequences where you don't see a lot of shots where you don't see Martin Sheen's face. That's Joe Estevez. Oh, <laughs> so that was, you know what they were little bits. They would shoot while Martin Sheen was gone. Well, funny. Um, Oh, look at that. Yeah, it's uh but obviously they, there weren't there wasn't a huge amount they could do without Martin Sheen, but uh, they did a little bit. And I supposedly the vo- narration, the voiceover is 
is Joe Estevez actually, and not Martin Sheen. He oh he did the voiceover. Their voices are almost identical, so I don't know if it's true. I've heard. Um, I think in one of the trailers you can hear. Excuse me. What I think is actually Martin Sheen, and there is a difference in the vo- in the voice. Like you can tell, it's a a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, so the what I've always heard is that it is Joe Estevez's voice, and he's <laughs> and well, all that, and he's uncredited on the movie. Fascinating! Wow. <laughs> Fly in his little brother to be his body double. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, you know, and so as they get to the end of the film. Marlon Brando shows up on set and he is, you know, yet another another major hurdle that Coppola has to deal with. And, you know, Kurtz in the novel is written and I think in the script was intended to be this really thin, sickly. He's dying. He's on his deathbed. Um, So he's not really like up and about. And, um, you know, he's like his discussions with Willard are sort of like his last act um but brando shows up about almost a hundred pounds overweight Hmm. and he hadn't read the script he hadn't read heart of darkness he understood very little about the character and you know ends up spending day after day of just you know coppola martin sheen and brando just going over the character and over his background and who this guy is and Coppola just reading the novel out loud to Brando and really like, I mean, it's totally unprofessional and yeah, <laughs> what Brando did. And Screw in the that. meantime, the guy's making a million dollars a week. He was supposed to be there for three weeks and is now extending that more and more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every week that goes by, that's another million dollars for him. <laughs> what a jerk. <laughs> frankly what a jerk (laughs) yeah and you know there's so he would a lot of the dialogue that that brando gives is all just improv and and just kind of a stream of consciousness yeah um that's just he's just kind of spewing and a lot of people say you know some of the editors who've seen all this footage said some of a, a lot of it was just absolutely brilliant just brilliant you know poetry mm-hmm um, a lot of it was not usable at all. And, and then Coppola found a way, you know, to dig through all of it and, and really start shaping that madness back into something. But it was really not what was intended and just another thing Coppola just had to deal with on set. Hmm. So this whole sequence is just, um, you know, just creating more and more problems for him. Um, is it... Uh... So, I mean, like having to go, (laughs) having to go through this entire process. I mean, this is the last thing they shot more or less, right? Or like, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Everything with him and his giant compound and everything like that. And then, yeah. So to like get, get, get close to the finish line. And then the the other hurdle is, well, Brando shows up like overweight, not looking like he's supposed to unprepared, having to do all this work to get him to where, you know, all the work he could have done before he showed up. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's got to be maddening, right? <laughs> that's going to, yeah. Oh yeah. It's got to drive a director mad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not only that, you, you throw Dennis Hopper 
Oh at his, God. you know, still at his peak kind of craziness. Oh my God! Uh, on, you know, on a lot of drugs, fast talking, not you know, not taking direction. Uh, you know, he's trying to Coppola is trying to deal with both of them. Um, <laughs> you know, initially he had more sequences of the of the fo- the uh, photo journalist, mm-hmm. who's you know Hopper doesn't even have a name in this story. Yeah. Um, you know, the photojournalist and Kurtz together, but he's like, I can't get these guys in a room together. Yeah. Like, we're, we're never going to do anything. Right. We're never going to film anything. We're just going to talk. Bunch of crazies. <laughs> Bunch of drugged up crazy people talking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's uh, actors, man. <laughs> but what, you know, what did this, uh, did when you get, so as they float down, as they approach this compound at the end, I mean, it's clear, like, the compound represents death. You know, this is, like, the end of the line. Mm -hmm. This is the end of of everything, really. This is going to be the end of Kurtz. This is going to be the end of Willard as he knows it. Mm -hmm. You know, if he physically survives whatever's about to happen, psychologically, he's going to be a different person afterwards. Yeah. Um, How did you feel, like, kind of coming into this sequence, watching it for the first time? What did you? What were your expectations? Uh, you know, like going through as the boat approaches, and you know, it like all of those, all of the, all of his followers who were in on the water um, and sort of allowing him in. It's like he's going through this gate. Like it was like he's going through mm-hmm. a portal. Like that's what was my first thought. Was like this is a portal to another world. Like another you know dimension the afterlife whatever like it's the outside world is not relevant um and uh so i thought i mean and i thought it was i mean gorgeous it was beautifully shot um and just the 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 design of it all um was was fantastic so it was it's such a contrast from you know sort of the beginning of the movie and and these guys giving him his mission in this room and eating a big big steak or whatever the hell they were eating you know the, and the, yeah the shrimp, the shrimp and, yeah. and all that yeah. and it's just sort of like and like this is what they have no idea what to expect you know uh, that's up there so um it, yeah i mean and and it's just like the, all the 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 statues that were they had built for for all of it and all that stuff it was just a really gorgeous um place and uh yeah you knew you, like whatever whatever happened before like this is like this is the ultimate like um, culmination of all the weird shit and and crazy stuff. So it, it kind of it set the tone a little bit. Like get get ready. This is not your normal. This is not anything that's normal. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, you know it's it's funny that Coppola set out back in the beginning when he was you know wanting to make this uh, the first film about Vietnam. His, his intention was to make an action movie that was more of a blockbuster action movie that he could sell. He just wanted to sell tickets to. That was his first <laughs> desire for this movie. And it's so funny to see how much that changed because this couldn't be further from that by the end. Yeah. Yeah, that's nothing yeah. like that. I mean, I actually, I mean, it did seem a little bit like that when it's with, with Duvall and all that. Like, you could sort of see, like, maybe the whole movie could be like this, just helicopters and guns and explosions yeah. and big music and all that. I mean, to, to have Ride of the Valkyries playing, which is, uh, I, I forgot that this is where it originated from, like, but you've seen in other mm-hmm. pieces that parody it or 
downright steal it and stuff like that. I mean, just this epic thing. Like this could this could just be a big action movie. You know, I, I kind of see it. Um, but then it gets it gets weird when you're on the ground with them. You know. Uh, yeah. So it's funny that that, but his intention was to sort of be a crowd pleaser. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't be further from that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, this examination into the at the insanity of it, and every every situation that they come across along the way is just more and more insane. When they come to that sequence at the bridge, uh, I think it's at the Dolong Bridge, oh, where you know, like they're just they're running around without anybody in charge, and guys are just you know firing shots and. No one knows what they're doing or what their mission is anymore. And, yeah. um, you know, when you see everyone lose their minds with the Playboy bunnies and uh, it's just, you know, the end is just going to be a complete, you know, psychological trip. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, then we throw Dennis Hopper in there. Forget about it. Yeah, I didn't I didn't realize <laughs> Hopper was even in this film. I didn't I don't think I knew that. I mean, I probably. I'm sure it's been set. I've sur- I mean, the thing, I wouldn't have thought about it. So I'm like, oh, no. And then he's just doing his thing, man. And he's like, he's monologuing all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy. This guy is a challenge. <laughs> well, guy. Hopper is like the wildest of the of this wild bunch in the, in the Hollywood New Wave movement. I mean, he, yeah. he uh, you know, it starts with Bonnie and Clyde, but really is solidified with his, his film, Easy Rider, in 69. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in 71, he makes this film called The Last Movie, which is, I think, meant to be similar to Easy Rider, but was much more difficult uh, to make and came out much worse and kind of, you know, ousted him from Hollywood. And he had so many drug problems. It was uh, people couldn't work with him. And he was like running around on set with a gun and yelling at everybody and, you know, working at 24 hours a day and just just too wild even for them. Mm. Um, So this was sort of his opportunity to kind of get back into onto a major movie again. Oh, I see. So I think he was more careful on this, but still, I mean, you can see it especially, you know, it's clear on camera. Like he is, you know, still on drugs, still very, you know, o- overly high energy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's a, quite a character to introduce. You know, you meet both him and Kurtz. It's like uh, like two giant new characters right at the end. Yeah, like holy, holy shit. Um, there's one shot. In the entire movie, that's right when you when they get there, that it's it's when the boat basically comes to shore there, and you probably know what shot I'm talking about, but it's like Chef is is piloting the boat, and mm-hmm. this is just one. It's just a static shot of him, uh, that just seems like out of place in the whole movie. Like I I don't know what, like it's just there was just a couple of back and forths about. The, keeping the boat there or something or other, mm-hmm. but it's like, it's like on sticks and it's just this weird, it doesn't make sense. I, it's like they, it's like they had to reshoot something really quickly or something. I don't know. It might've, yeah, it might've been, you know, who knows like where that actually fell in when they actually shot, yeah. you know, but it's wild they, because it, it felt so out of place because it seems so like pedestrian and like, it's just, it is just it's this weird, like static shot that doesn't, that's you know it's used very quickly and it's it's more or less an inconsequential moment you know it's just it's giving some information about i don't know leaving the boat there or whatever mm-hmm. and then 
Um, but it just doesn't look like the rest of the movie. It's like it was this weird insert. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if you. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. But it, it was no. Like, I know which. I know which shot you're talking. Yeah, about. it's just so weird to me. Like, which. So I don't know if like that was intentional. Like, also here's this like this is this will add to the surrealism. Like it's so like it's, yeah. This is this weird pedestrian basic filmmaking shot. You know. I don't know. Well, again, everything is so you know beyond surreal by the, by this point and and it's like can willard even accomplish his mission does he even remember what his mission is yeah um you know he's so and everything is so you know kurtz's shadow is kind of hovering over the whole film mm-hmm. and then when he gets up close with him is he's this you know this huge personality who's just you know br- brainwashing all these you know all these natives and yeah. he's got north vietnam south vietnam soldiers in with him yep. native people he's got um, uh, you know american army guys like you know you see scott glenn very quickly there mm-hmm. <laughs> who is the guy who was previously sent to do willard's mission oh that's right that's right yeah 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 no dialogue yeah just you know it's just basically standing there uh, yeah. So you know, can can Willard push through and see through all of that to accomplish his mission? And even if he does, what is it going to do to him? Yeah. What's the consequence of that? Ugh. You know, I I wasn't. I actually it never really occurred to me till I watched it this time that you know it, it's clear like Willard survives. Yeah. You know, he's te- he's telling this story. Yeah. He's narrating this. It's not it's not narration as he's you know seeing it, as he's going through it. It's narration that he is telling the story to either himself or someone. Yeah, it's after the fact, like after he's home or getting debriefed or whatever. I don't know. Uh reliving these moments of uh Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that that I didn't realize I didn't know if he was going to make it and so that that he gets him and and Lance out of there. Like that, he. I thought he was going to leave Lance there. Like, yeah, honestly. But you know, the fact that he had this awareness. I. I mean, I, I think the easy, the easy ending here is like he takes over, you know, and becomes the new right. god of the of it. Yeah. But something he's uh, he get he doesn't get fully swallowed up in it, and um, I'm not sure if it's obvious why he doesn't buy into it. Cause it seems like he's on that road on that path. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think he's always able to acknowledge that Kurtz is insane. Yeah. Um, and, and because he's been able to acknowledge that that's the one thread that's keeping him from going over the edge. Yeah. Um, you know, clearly this is the death of captain Willard and his rebirth. Yeah. And yes, he has this, you know, after he, he, uh, spoiler alert kills Colonel Kurtz. Um, you know, he comes out, looks like Kurtz, yeah. you know, he's all, uh, you know, dressed in the same, you know, he just has that same kind of energy and like that he is the new king yeah. and everyone bows down to him mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, but he's able to drop the knife or the machete and, you know, kind of stumble towards the, uh, kind of wander towards their, their boat and just, just literally sees Lance and just grabs him and drags him with him. Yeah. And uh, and you really don't know what's what's next for these guys. You know how if it took that much to get them there, how are they going to get back, and where are they going? I know. Like I was like, oh my god, now they have to go all the way back. Like they've already gone through all this, 
all the hell uh, and all the insanity. Yeah. Um, of the, you know, so he's got to like, you know, the odyssey in reverse, you know, he's got to get home. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, yeah, you assume he does. And he, he protects the, the, the most naive person that was there to help protect him. So yeah, I kind of like that. And he, he brought Lance back, <laughs> you know, none of those men are coming back uh, home uh, the same though. And that's, I guess that's the point. Uh, obviously. Yeah, that's the point. I mean, no one did. No one did. You know, yeah. nobody that went to Vietnam could have possibly, or really any war. Um, yeah, any war. You know, Vietnam was just such a messier war than so many of the other ones. Yeah. You know, it's very it was very unstructured war. It wasn't fought like World War One or Two or, or even the Korean War. Yeah. Um, you know, they didn't even really understand who they were fighting, and that was part of the problem. Nor like why they were even there. Yeah, the guys didn't know what the what what the point was. You know, the yeah, it's what a cycle. It's just a psychological barrage to be in these like protracted wars and do, serving these tours and and all of that. And uh, yeah, the fact that he wanted to, the fact that Coppola's first intention. With Heart of Darkness, adapted to the Vietnam War, was to sell tickets for an action movie. Is weird. Like it's just almost like yeah. It's so that that sounds so exploitive. Um, and then you know, at least now understanding what he has in front of him is really a more artistic uh, challenge. And you know, it, it's 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 not about that exploitation, and it's about this exploration. Um, mm-hmm. that you can really only touch on. I mean, it's the the scars run so deep on any anyone who was in these wars and saw action and and survived. Uh, I can't. I yeah. I can't even imagine. Yeah, it's uh, it's this is it's this is not like a movie that you just put on. And that's what I was trying to tell you. You know, going into it that. This isn't like, oh, let's watch Apocalypse Now. You know, this is a real, <laughs> this is what probably one of the deeper films we'll, we'll get into. And, um, yeah. you know, it's not one you just you just throw on. It's, uh, no. you need to be in the right rhythm. You know, even recording this podcast, you know, we, we you need to be in the right mindset to really dive into this one. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a different... You know, it's different than all of Coppola's other films. And, you know, he put so much of himself into it that there was, I I don't think artistically, there was a lot left afterwards. If you look at Coppola's body of work after that, I mean, nothing compares to what he had done up to this. Yeah. And I'm not saying that even this is his best because, I mean, I think most people would agree probably Godfather 1 or 2 is his best work, mm-hmm. but this is his most... You know, he put him all of himself into this. Yeah, yeah, a true artist, um, and and exhausting everything he's got from that. Yeah, I mean, it's mm-hmm. what can what else can you say? You know, I mean, you know, the ending sequence, like they hired uh, the Ifigao tribe, which was local to that region. You know, those are that's a real tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they again the 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 production immersed itself in, in with that tribe's culture. And, yeah. you know, you can see footage of them doing these ceremonies together and the, the sacrifice of the, uh, I think that's a water Buffalo. Um, that was, you know, they really did that. And Eleanor Coppola filmed it and, you know, showed it to, 
to Francis, and then he's like, I gotta like they gotta redo that for for the film. Like that's gotta be in the sequence somewhere. So things like that that he would just on the fly just add in. Yeah. Um you know, that was a tough I remember especially the first time I saw it, that was a tough thing to to watch happen. Yeah, that was that was I was blown away. Like I I was really glad to be to to see the documentary that it's part of the you know these ritual celebrations and things. And I mean, it was slaughtering the animal to be consumed. You know, it wasn't like a wasn't just like they're not just killing an animal. It was it was it was to feed them all right. and all of that. So it was yeah, it was you know, so for a purpose. So yeah, it served a purpose. So because. And yeah, I'm sure the same thing. You know, you could say like, you know, they slaughtered it for for the for the food. But like, I'm like, you don't just slaughter animals for a movie, though. Like, you know, like right. is this in the script? Yeah. Like, and clearly it wasn't. So of course not. Um, yeah. But uh, so yeah, it was it was so the the live slaughter was yeah a little uneasy. But I'm not I'm not necessarily complaining about it. But certainly, you know, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of things in the film that aren't necessarily easy to watch. Um, you know, when they, right. When the boat comes across that other boat on the river and, you know, they slaughter those people and it was violent and it was just, uh, disturbing. It was so disturbing. And yeah, I don't know. And then, and the fact that Willard does that, I I was actually surprised that it was Willard. Like he was so focused on his mission that the, the survivor of that slaughter, he just puts a bullet in her because now they don't have to waste any time. He's got it. He's got it. Yeah. Well, Willard told them not to stop that boat. Yeah. You know, they, they, they stop it to inspect it for something. And, and yeah. Willard's like, no, that's not our mission. Don't stop. Yeah. They do stop and they get into this situation and end up shooting everybody on it. And it's like, well, now this girl's dying. Like, we just need to finish her off and keep going. And they slaughtered just because Clean was just antsy and just and he just started firing. Yep. Like, Which is... What happens when you have a fourteen-year-old, you know, with guns in their hands and in a war zone? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's just jumpy, and he just, you know, and then it turned into that. So it's, um, which is, I'm sure there's countless stories like that from the war. Oh yeah. Just yeah. uh, Yeah. I mean, the average age in Vietnam was like nineteen. Was it nineteen? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, that's how many young, really young people were there. Jesus. I can't imagine all the idiots that graduated from high school giving them a gun and <laughs> putting them to war. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what it was. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of reasons that that war was such a mess. Yeah. Um. But yeah, and I think that I think that you know I think he achieved that goal though of like getting that same feeling of the insanity of Vietnam yeah. in the film. Like I think that does. Uh, I think that does come across. I think you get that tone for sure. Yeah, it's 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 funny how it is sort of like an anti-war film without really without really trying to dive into like sort of the the senselessness uh, on a macro level, like the reason why these wars happen or anything of that nature. It's more it's anti-war because of what it does to the individual uh and and the scarring and the effects beyond that and what yeah. and the choices you're forced to make um, instead of like, sort of like that they're, I mean, I guess you get it with when he gets his mission that, you know, they're all just sort of beholden to their orders and, and like people who are way more in charge, you know, way higher up the chain making these guys do these things. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, but it, and it's not necessarily made explicitly as like anti-war. Like I'm going to make an anti-war film, but he uses the backdrop for that psychological exploration. Yeah. And, uh, I think you could kind of co-opt it like <laughs> as a, yeah, this, this is why, like, this is not too far off from reality. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, considering what happens to our veterans and, um, after they come back from, from seeing this kind of action and, right. <clears throat> the psychological problems, the depression, suicides, um, abuse, you know, addictions, well, all of that. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, they're not, you know, they're not prepared for what they're going to deal with. Yeah. You know, may, I, I don't know. I have not, I've not been in the army or I have not been in a war, um, so I can't speak firsthand. But yeah. uh, from what I know, it's it's how can you prepare for this kind of thing? Right. How can you be prepared for these choices you're going to have to make in these horrible situations. Um, That's why the the military, you know, trains you the way they do. And just to like, just do as you're told, don't question, just do this. And that's your goal. And don't think about the rest. Yeah. I mean, you you have, unfortunately it doesn't work. Humans don't work that way. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, you know, we don't work. You you can't break someone down and put them back together. The, the, uh, to a hundred percent. So to prepare for like the things that are just, inhuman um and yeah i mean you, you've got a they put up psychological barriers to help to cope while you're in it but um <laughs> which kind of like makes it all kind of i don't know the to then to then go to the parallel of coppola's like driven to insanity you know parallel is a parallel to the story i mean at the very least we can at least make a parallel to the story but it's it is nothing it's nothing compared to the actual no. horrors that that happened. So right, I, I I'll 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 give like the the comparison to Willard's journey, but that's yes. as far as I go. <laughs> like he is that, well, that's that's kind of why I was phrasing it that way because you know Coppola compares it to Vietnam. It's like well, yeah, it's not life and death other than the the water or buffalo. Like there's not like life and death happening. Yeah, um, you know maybe close with Martin Sheen, but um, yeah. Uh, so let's put in the proper context, but yeah, you know, so they, they finally finished the film and there's an unused sequence where they actually, you can see it on the DVD where they blow up the comp Kurtz's compound. Mm. You know, they've called in the air raid and he amazingly like escapes before that hits. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but there was, they were going to use it over the credit sequence, uh, but then didn't, um, so another, you know, you could see the whole set being just destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he it took him another two years. So they finished filming in seventy seven, uh, in March of seventy seven, and the movie comes out uh, August fifteenth of seventy nine. So he spends the next two years editing the movie. Oh my gosh! So, I mean, this ultimately though, this is like a top, probably top four. Not probably. This is definitely top four war film sure. for me. Mm-hmm. Um, in no particular order, it's this. It's it's uh, Private Ryan. It's um, Platoon and Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. Those are, um, you know, and there are other movies relating to wars that are that are amazing. Like Coming Home is a movie you should see about the after effects of coming back from from. Uh, in that one, it's from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Should we talk a little little box office? Not that the movie's about money, but you, should we see how it did? Let's see how it did, yeah. 
so it ends up costing uh, about $31, $32 million. Mm-hmm. We talked about that. Uh, it, uh, it was released August 15th, 1975. Uh, funny, it opens up number five against uh, opening up against Monty Python's Life of Brian. Oh, okay. So yeah. it, it, uh, it doesn't, you know, that first week doesn't, maybe doesn't open well. It's also behind Star Wars, uh, North Dallas 40, Alien, and Life of Brian. Mm-hmm. So it, it comes in number five, but ends up, you know, having a really long run in theaters. It pulls in uh, 85 million domestically, 150 million worldwide. So mm. thankfully for Coppola and for United Artists, it is a big hit. Um, it's a big moneymaker. Um, it uh, it ends up number four of 1979 between Rocky II and Star Trek The Motion Picture. So mm. it's, you know, it ends up getting way up there. Um, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've heard people who hate this film and, and people like me who love it. Um, I think it's the kind of film you have to be in the right mindset for, like we were talking about. Yeah. It's not, you know, if you want to see a little bit more of, you know, the horrors of war, but more action, you can put Platoon in or Private Ryan. Those are a little more cinematic. This is just, this is a head trip. Yes. Yeah. Head trip is a, a good way to put it. This is not, this is not glorifying and it's certainly, it's not comfortable. Um, I think is the word I'd use. Like there's no, there's no moment of comfort in this. Not that like these mm-hmm. war action movies are already or anything, but it's like, it's always a challenge. I think it's challenging you at all times in your brain. Like, yeah. So it's, it's, it's highly engaging and very like, it's just heavy. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a lot. It's, um, you know, it's not a lighthearted film at all. It's quite the opposite. It's very heavy and, um, but it's, I think it's beautiful as a film. I mean, visually, it's stunning. Vittorio Storaro's cinematography is just absolutely beautiful. He won an Oscar for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, they won an Oscar for sound as well. Um, it's really, it's quite a piece of cinema. And, and a, a, I think it's a beautiful piece of art by Coppola. You know, really his last mm. Um, mm-hmm. The rest of his films after this was all studio films. And, uh, you know, he did The Outsiders and Rumblefish and Gardens of Stone. And, and I think Peggy Sue Got Married might be one of his bigger successes. That's uh, still a popular film. Uh, Godfather 3 is a complete, like, disaster, um, mm-hmm. you know, on its own. I, I don't mind Godfather 3 so much, but in comparison, it's just, it's fallen so far away. Mm-hmm. I'm not a Dracula fan. And and then I think one of you know he's he's barely made you know he's had other projects he's worked on that have taken years and years and years and had lots of creative problems with but I think one of the last like major films that he put out was already twenty years ago with uh, the Rainmaker mm. oh yeah the Rainmaker yeah hmm. and with your pal Matt Damon that's right and the uh, the full title of that other movie is Bram Stoker's Dracula by the way just correct you know, yes yeah you know just FYI don't get it wrong it's, I will say I, I'll, I need to see that one again it's been a long time I bet you'll so. love it oh I bet bet you'll love it <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I don't know what would you so let's talk about our scale of Jack Burton's Ooh, here yeah 1 to 13 what would you rank this Ugh, it's, it's 
It's hard. Yeah, you got to weigh a number of factors here. I know. There's so much. It's a it's a it's an important piece of art. It's cinema. It's a it's a heavy trip. Um, like I said, there's a level of discomfort with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I I put a I think a lot of I think the heavier metric for me is the entertainment value when I do these for all these films, you know, was am I entertained by this? Like, um, which I don't think is, I think this is like actually irrelevant. Like, yeah, (laughs) I can't, I can't use the, uh, the weighted metric of entertainment value because otherwise this thing drops like, like, yeah, we, for entertainment value, it's not an entertainment film. Like you'd give it like a two, you know? Um, but it's, Uh, I, it's, it's probably, I mean, it's, I don't know, I I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's probably one of the, it's probably one of the best things I've seen in like a long time. Um, finally, you know, getting to it. Um, yeah, I mean, it probably has to be my, my highest Jack Burton, uh scale uh i'm not sure do i do i i don't i can't give it a 13 um you can do anything if you try hard enough david i'm probably gonna give it 12 jack burtons i think that's 12 out of 13 jack burtons uh yeah nearly perfect film for me uh i guess i don't know i don't know <laughs> it's, just, it's yeah it's tough it's it's, it's tough and it's like seems... what what do you what is your scale it's as an art film you know i would i would put it at least 12 i you know probably 12 12.5 12. um it's hard to give it you know it's hard to give out that 13 but um it's hard i yeah i i i love this film i mean yeah. I, I again you have to be in the right mindset to watch it but yeah. um i can i feel like i can get myself there i enjoy the you know how beautifully it's made the yeah. performances um you know even brando like he yeah. coppola did a lot with what he what he had with brando it wasn't what he intended but uh you know the insanity of the character certainly comes across and he did a really nice job of of cutting it you know uh, just just technically speaking the, the movie is brilliant um sure. it, it really is a masterpiece yeah so how do you qualify, quantify it down to specifically? Uh, on the Jack Burton scale? Yeah. 12.5. 12.5 then. Okay. There it yeah. is. Yeah. 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 Okay. I wasn't sure if you were. Yeah. Okay. That's, uh, yeah, that makes sense. I think uh, I get that. Absolutely. It's hard to, yeah, it's and- hard to look at like a piece of, like, like actual art, you know, a real artistic achievement and then say, yeah, I get, you know, out of five stars, you know, I give it a four, you know, like, <laughs> well, it's because there's so much yeah. to it. There's that you can't really quantify it. Our Jack Burton scale kind of like is kind of useless here, but it's fun to do. It's fun. It's, That's true. You know, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not like, um, but yeah, I, I think this, well, this is it. And, and just circling back to like, how does it hold up today? I think it holds up incredibly well, yeah. you know, um, uh, you know, if you want to quantify it on that scale, then that, you know, it, there's nothing that really ages it. it. It's because it's appropriate to the insanity of war is the insanity of war, whether it's World War One, whether it's Korea, Vietnam, um, you know, in Afghanistan, the Iraq war, uh, you know, it, it's it can apply to all of those things yeah. because the situation, whether it's the jungle or the desert or on water, it, it's the same. Yeah. Um, and that's really what over overrides everything here. Um, yeah. 
So I think I think it holds up incredibly well. I think it's uh, an amazing piece of art. If anyone's listening to this that has not seen it, absolutely, you should. Um, you know, and it's one of those movies like, don't text, put your phone down. Yeah. You really just got to focus on the movie and and just stay with it the whole time um, because it's a journey. Yes, yes, it's a hell of a journey. Um, yeah, and, and there's a reason it's it has permeated the culture pop culture by it's been imitated repeated satirized um like in hot shots part deux hot shots part deux uh <laughs> and countless others um the, yeah. and especially the iconic lines or iconic uh, imagery uh being reused i mean it's it's every every creative person who works in hollywood has seen this film and is affected by it it's and it's you know and then Think of all the military families um, out there in this country. Um, it's probably been seen by by most of them, you know, at, the, at a certain point. Uh, so it's this is something that is, and there's always going to be war for the for our, I think in our lifetime. So it's as long as there's humans. As long as there's humans, you know. So it's this will this will sustain. So legacy, yeah. legacy wise, and for for what it did really for films and for for new generations of filmmakers after um mm-hmm. yeah it's uh, uh the jack burton scale is is almost meaningless but it, you know what? it's gonna get my highest jack burton's ever 12 all right <laughs> <laughs> well you know of course we we got so heavy this week we're gonna have to lighten things back up yeah Let's, let's have yeah, some fun. I'm. Uh, I'm not going to say what it is, but I think we'll get a little bit lighter again. Okay. Uh, going forward here, um, but it was fun to really take a deep dive back into one of the bigger and you know we we talked about French Connection before, but this is yeah. this is even heavier than that one, and of course there's so many more that we'll look at, but we like to we do like to space them out so we can have some of the more entertaining films in between that we can look back at. Yeah. Uh, um, I appreciate you could hold my hand through this whole thing, and uh, and quite literally, we're this is the one time we're in the same room recording, and you've been holding my hand the entire time. Um, True. So I appreciate that because that is that has soothed me uh, to 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 get through this discussion. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Anytime, anytime. Yes. Uh, whenever we do cover Teen Wolf, I'm sure we'll have to do it there as well. Oh, oh! Did you just give away? You... <laughs> nope. Oh, that's not the next one? Nope, not the next one. Oh, did I just give something away then? <laughs> nope. <laughs> did I did I But stay tuned everybody. <laughs> just stay tuned. Just stay tuned. There's there's more movies coming. <laughs> uh, as always, you know, check us out on social media. You can stay up to a uh, date about uh, what's going on with us and our, our latest episodes that we're at Reconcinimation Podcast on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, you can find our archives and everything about the other films we've covered at www.reconcinemation.com uh, and find us on what is it where are we it's not iTunes anymore it's Apple Apple Podcasts sure, right Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts Spotify uh, uh, I, Stitcher iHeartRadio like Podbean, literally everywhere yeah. if you've already been listening to us you know where to get us so yeah so check us out on those platforms give us that hot rating Give us the thumbs up, the five stars. Give us that review. Uh, help, uh, help with our, our notoriety in the podcast world because there's just yeah. there's just so many podcasts and we're we're happy to so have many. You. Yeah, 
Uh, we always appreciate the listenership. And uh, also, we appreciate our friends who help us out. Uh, thank you to E.K. Wimmer for the theme song, as usual. And don't forget to check out his podcast, Laser Graves, which is a, a great look back at some of the more uh, bizarre horror and uh, action films of the 80s. And uh, our friend Curtis Moore for the poster. Uh, thank you to those guys. And uh, I'm looking forward to EK will be back on the show with us uh, at some point soon. So I'm looking forward to that. That'd be fun. Um, yeah, with that, uh, I've got to get in the PBR Street Gang 2 to take my journey back to my house uh, downriver. Oh, okay. So, uh, sure. I'm going to say so long, and uh, we'll see you next time on Reconcinimation. Bye now. <laughs>